0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good to see you, my friends. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to take a look at verses 40 to 48 this morning. I'm going to begin with a question, though. How many of you have ever watched a TED Talk? Can I see your hands? Okay, a lot of people do. The whole idea behind a TED Talk is you have some topic And then they bring some of the world's best in to address that topic in 18 minutes. That's all that they want them to speak. I'm gonna go for an hour and a half this morning. I'm kidding. One of the most viewed talks uh, in terms of TED Talks of all time was by Brene Brown, uh, who's a professor at the University of Houston, if we have any cougars out there. There's, There's a few. Now, so she was doing her research and this is what she found. She said, I ran into this thing that unraveled connection, and it was shame. And when she's talking about connection, she's talking about in interpersonal relationships from person to person. She said, I saw that shame literally brought relationships completely apart. She said, shame is understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of that connection? Now that's interesting. How many of you have have ever felt like that in your life? I am unworthy of this relationship, and maybe there's just something kind of pressing in on you. It could have been something that you said. It could have been something that you did. That's what she's talking about. So it got me thinking, what do Americans think about this? Um, And a guy named Scott McConnell, who did some research at Lifeway, he said many Americans are more worried about their reputation than they are about their conscience. That's not good, by the way. That's like saying, I want to have the appearance of having character, but I don't actually want the character itself. It's not good. He said, but they worry less about guilt and fear and more about avoiding shame. So he goes on to say, what's our biggest cultural fear? It it proves to be shame. What's surprising is not that personal freedom, ambition, and doing the right thing are valued by Americans. It's that risk to our reputation is what matters the most to us. Now, of course, some of you might know this. There's a a book that some of you might have had to have read way back in yesteryear called The Scarlet Letter. How many of you had to read The Scarlet Letter? Can I see those hands? You might remember the story there. It was uh, set among the Puritans, and what the novel does is it tells the story of a young Hester Prynne who was a young mother who was forced to wear the letter A, the scarlet letter A on her chest because she had, had, she had committed adultery. And you might remember she had committed adultery with the Reverend Dimsdale. You remember this story? Like the whole book, when you think about it, is filled with this theme of shame. And she did not really feel at any point that she had any connection to society around her because she had to constantly bear the weight physically on her clothes. She had to constantly bear the weight of shame. Well, here's what Scott McConnell went on to ask about this, at least with regard to Americans. He said, "Here's what I want to know: Are churches addressing the issues Americans care about the most, especially when it comes to guilt and fear and shame?" So he went and asked. That's how you find out from people: is you just go ask them. So this was, these were the questions: Which of these feelings do you seek to avoid the most? Did you catch it? Which of these desires is the strongest in your life? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Is it shame? Which of these directions do you value the most? I know you're wanting to know the results of the study, so I'm gonna tell you. Here's what he found out. Overall, 38% of Americans say that they would avoid shame the most, while 31% say guilt, and 30% said that they were most worried about things related to fear in their life. I can't answer that for you. But here's what he, he found out as he was talking to people. Here's the way that they felt. Guilt says, I deserve to be punished. But shame says, I am worthless. So what the research went on to show is this is how people felt. People especially that were dealing with shame, they're never going to like me. What I'm going to do is never going to work, and I'm never going to amount to anything. That's that's quite a weight to bear daily on your shoulders, don't you think? And especially given the reports of Americans saying that many of them feel exactly like that. And so people that are eaten up with shame, typically they assume the worst, because they think that they are the worst, and as a result, they believe that they deserve the worst. It's why they believe that the relationships that they have, they're undeserving of it, and often, as a result, they disconnect from those. There's a story in Luke chapter eight, and I'm gonna set two of these side by side so that this theme will make some sense this resurrection morning. Let me begin by re- reading in verse 40. It says, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him, And just then, a man named Jairus came, and he was a leader of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he pleaded with him to come to his house. And here's why, because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. Now, when he was going, so Jesus says yes, the crowds were nearly crushing him. All right, now, stop for just a second. Let me talk about this guy, Jairus. Jairus is a respected man, you know, this guy has some clout in his community. He's, he's a weighty person, right? So with that in mind, um, him being a ruler of the synagogue, there were just ways that people would view them. And there were also ways that they were just supposed to carry themselves. Jairus comes up to Jesus and he breaks every rule with the way that he was supposed to handle himself as a man that has a standing in society. He walks up and he drops at Jesus's feet. Grown men, by the way, did not fall at somebody's feet. It just wasn't the way it was supposed to go. Wear your long robe instead. Grow out your beard in a way that would make the Duck Dynasty guys jealous. That's the way that men were supposed to handle themselves back then. And it just wasn't what Jairus was up to. Instead, he was desperate. And he was scared. I think what Jairus Jairus realized in this moment is that in spite of his position and in spite of his clout, In spite of the way that people saw him, this guy was absolutely powerless in the situation. So what he decided to do is to go to someone who could actually do something about it for his daughter. I respect him for that. But there's an interruption. While they're on the journey to go to see Jairus' daughter, look at verse 43. It says, a woman that was suffering from bleeding for 12 years, who had spent all that she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any. All right, hold on for just a second. Let me unpack that. So what this, what's happening here is this woman is having a discharge of blood, which means that she had a disease that produced a menstrual flow that would not stop for 12 years, it wouldn't stop. So what this also means is that she is, she's not just sick, It means that she is in pain, it means that she is unable to have children, which back then, especially socially, that meant mm, people were gonna kinda look down on her for this. She didn't ask for it, it was just a part of her life. Spiritually speaking, that also means to the people that were there, she was what was called ceremonially unclean. That means because since she had been bleeding for 12 years, she was not allowed in public, she could not worship with other people, and she could not be in contact with other people. Could you imagine this kind of life? Could you imagine a hugless life for about 12 years? Could you imagine that? Or could you imagine not being welcome to come into Woodridge this morning because you have a bleeding disorder? And that's because the way that society would be viewing you. You have to remove yourself from all of this. This is her life. This is what she's known. Luke, by the way, who was a doctor, did you notice what he added? He added that according according to the doctors, she was incurable, and it's not just that she's incurable, she's also broke because she's already spent all of her money going to the doctors that said that maybe they could do something to cure her. That sounds familiar. There was nothing for her. I want you to see this right now, two people. Can you see them? Two people, completely different lives, they had completely different reasons to not come to Jesus. For Jairus, I think this is my guess. The main reason that he would have to not come to Jesus would be pride. I mean, think about who he is. Think about about what it could do to his reputation to literally go to the feet of Jesus and to bow down before him. Think about what it could do to his reputation as all of these people are watching him. Pride could have gotten in the way, don't you think? I don't think that that was the bleeding woman's problem. I don't think that it was pride. I think for her, it probably would have been shame. What do you think? In other words, is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, even they will think that I'm not worthy of this connection? Instead, we get a different response from her. Look at verse 44. Instead, what did she do? It says, she approached from behind Jesus touched the end of his robe, and instantly her bleeding stopped. That's a good day for her. Mark's gospel says she heard about Jesus, but the question for me was, what did she hear? I mean, what has she heard in the past? And I think maybe, maybe, is from Malachi 4:2, it says that the Messiah would be so powerful that even the wing of his garment would bring healing. Maybe she had heard something like that before and says, "I've got a shot. I've got a chance." And so she goes. Here's the catch to her story though. She's not supposed to be there, remember? She's not supposed to be in contact with people. She's unclean. So she's unclean and I happen to be walking by and she rubs up against me, I'm unclean. But she takes the risk and she goes and she piles herself into the crowd because she wanted to have a shot at what a healing might look like. And when it says that she touched his robe, You need to understand. That's not like her just kind of doing this when Jesus walks by. She grabs a hold of the rope. This is her chance. Now I've tried to figure out why, because Jesus responds the second that she grabs it. He says, Who touched me? Who touched me? And I've tried to figure out why he would say something like that. And the nearest I could come up with reminded me something years ago. Wendy and I were very newly married. We were very poor. Now, how many of you remember when you were newly married and you were very poor? I didn't see any hands. Apparently, Wendy and I were the only two poor people when we first got married. I'll tell you, y'all are lucky. Look at you. We should have been hanging out with you guys. Well, here was the thing. Um, She had a habit. Newly married, you figure these things out, right? But she had a habit. So peanut butter. If you open the lid, she would take a spoon, she would get a whole thing of it out, and then she would just eat out of the peanut butter jar. Does anybody out there do that? Don't lie to me. <laughs> she did it. All right, well, here's the thing. So I remember talking about it and saying, hey, are you, are you eating out of the peanut butter jar? And she's like, no, no. All right, so fast forward. Fast forward, I come home. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a student at A&M, and uh, I'm coming home and go into our little 600-square-foot apartment and I opened up the pantry. I was just gonna do what poor people do. I eat peanut butter and jelly. And so I grabbed the peanut butter jar and when I did it, it was like I was like, what is that? So I popped the lid, open up. There was a spoon in there. Yeah, so a little bit later on, Wendy comes back. She comes in and I said, hey girl, have you been eating out of the peanut butter jar? And she's like, "No, no, no. So here's what I did. I opened it up and I was like, what's that? And I showed the spoon. And she's like, oh, I'm busted. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, I share the story, maybe it was a moment like that. Maybe it's a moment like that for this woman who grabbed my robe. Maybe what Jesus is looking for from her is for her to say, it was me, It's, it's me. Now, in the story, you have this guy named Peter, and Peter is absolutely useless as far as help goes at this point. Remember, you have this huge mass of people pushing in on Jesus. Jesus is like, who touched me? And Peter's like, well, it's a big crowd of people, Jesus. You know, like, oh, you've gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Not helpful. But here's the way that the rest of the story goes. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, someone touched me. And, and I know that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and she fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. And here's what Jesus says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, go in peace. Did you see the response of this woman? She responds to Jesus in faith. Now you need to understand the word faith means that you have trust or you have confidence in. In her case, she had trust or confidence in Jesus, you're all people of faith. You have trust or confidence in something. It's what the word means. But notice Jesus's reaction to her. He calls her daughter, daughter. It's like child of mine. I, just so you know, I, you probably know this, sorry this I have four daughters and each of them has a name. You have Avery, Kaylee, Maggie, and Lila but all of them also have other names that I have given them over the years in virtue of a unique relationship that I have with them. I'm not going to tell you what those names are. That's between us. But we have unique experiences that we've shared together, and I gave them kind of a pet name, right? Names matter. And Jesus just looks at this woman and he says, you're my daughter because you reached out to me in faith. You were a child of mine. Did you notice the change here, though? Because what you had was the unclean was touching the clean, and she became clean. All right, so um, earlier this week, I went to the Y to work out. That's because they actually have sent messages to me before saying, it's been a while since we've seen you. That's called guilt. Or is it shame? I don't know. So I go to the Y and I work out. When I came home, there was a pile of clothes, and I took the clothes that I'd worked out in that... They didn't smell great anymore. And I just threw them on the pile. Well, the problem was the pile that I threw it on were actually the clean clothes. Ever done that before? And I I realized it later, because they'd been sitting there for a while, I was like, wait, wait, and so I picked them up. They didn't smell so good anymore. So I got to rewash everything that I'd washed before because what was unclean had touched what was clean. In this case, it worked with Jesus the complete other way around. Now, here's how we're like her. I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus is within eyeshot of her. She sees him. Maybe hiding in the crowd, because it seems like she was. And maybe that's a lot like you. Maybe she was hiding in the crowd because of the way they would see her. Maybe because of shame. But she decided to do something with it. And she decided that shame was not going to be what held her back from the healing that she needed. I want want you to see something this morning. That is the beauty and the power of confession. It's what it does. When you go to Jesus, it clears the air. Did you know that it's exactly the same even in your human relationships? Uh, Have you ever had to go to your spouse and say, I didn't handle that well? It clears the air. The mistake doesn't have a hold on you anymore. You've addressed it. It's the same in your relationship with Jesus. It keeps Satan from holding something over your head. It keeps you from hiding from the relationships when you know that something is wrong because we tend to. We make a mistake, we create distance. When Satan reminds you of your past, and he will, You can tell him that you've already worked that out with Jesus, that's what confession does. His grace is enough, that was all that you needed. And that the game that Satan wants to play by having a hold over your life by sin and failure, you gotta let that go. And remind it it's been addressed, it's actually done. But let me get back to guilt and shame for just a second. I actually believe that guilt is a good thing. We don't enjoy it, I've, I've actually never been guilty and enjoyed it, but guilt can be a good thing. And here's why, is because we feel guilty when we look at the choices that we've made, we compare them to the values that we have, we know that there's not a match there, and that feeling can actually push you on to have the change that you need in your life. I think guilt can be a good thing. I don't think that shame is the same. Uh, Brene Brown, when she gave her talk, she said, she sees shame as the intensely painful feeling and experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I'm unworthy of it, and so I'm not gonna pursue it. It could be something that we've experienced, done, failed to do, that really makes us believe that we're unworthy of that connection. We can feel this way in regards to our human relationships. We can feel this way in regard to our relationship with Jesus. I wanna point this out. We're for sure guilty, (laughs) we are. Guilty as, what is the saying? Guilty as sin, right? We, we are guilty. Let's own it, somebody got it wrong, but whatever. You were with the rest of us. <laughs> That's what happens when you invite audience participation. We are guilty for sure. I, I, want, I want you to hear something this morning. The cross reminds us that God does not see us as unworthy of a deep love and connection with him like shame would have you believe the cross tells you different. Don't follow its lead. Don't follow the lead of shame. Don't follow the lead of an accuser who is in your ear telling you that you are unworthy of this connection with God when what you were created for is that connection with God. Don't listen to that voice. Don't follow its lead. Instead, take a note from Jesus. In John 15, 13, he said, greater love has no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friends, that's the cross. That's how much he loves you. And this is why the story of the bleeding woman, it's so important, it's so important, because in spite of the crowd, even pressing through the crowd, she wants the healing that only Jesus can give to her body and so she goes to him and her faith, as Jesus said, saved her, I'm telling you this morning, it is your faith in Jesus that will heal your soul, it is what will save you this morning. It's where you have to go. I'm reminded of this story. Timothy Paul Jones wrote it, and I wanted to share it with you today. He said, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult. (laughs) You obviously have never been. (laughs) Or, Or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. He said, our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. He said, I, which was Timothy, he said, I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that kept her from going on the trip. And so, by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen a lot of pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades, But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one that was left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to that part of the United States. Here's what he said. He said, I thought I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability what i didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter in the month leading up to our trip to the magic kingdom she stole food when a simple request would have gotten her a snack she lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as she possibly could. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies only multiplied. So a couple of days before our family headed to Florida, he said, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk through her latest escapade. And she said, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? He said, the the thought actually had never crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. So in retrospect, he said, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage because the easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right. We're not going to take you. But by God's grace, I didn't do that. Instead, I asked her this question. Is this trip something that we're doing as a family? And she nodded but her eyes started to tear up. He said, so I asked her, are you a part of this family? And so she nodded again. He said, then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're a part of our family and we're not gonna leave you behind. Here's what he went on to say. He said, I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment, but they didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day that we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines. As I've said before, you can go to college or you can go to Disney, but you can't do both. But he said it was mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. So in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted. She was pensive. She was weepy. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. And when bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, he said. I held her and I asked her, so how was your first day at Disney World. And she closed her eyes and she put her head into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes and she said, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's it. That's the gospel. This is the call of Jesus. John 3, 16, whoever believes. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone comes after me, and by anyone, he means you. And the Bible is filled with any one kinds of stories. Matthew was a corrupt tax collector. That's appropriate. It's April. Paul. <laughs> Paul was a murderer. I want you to stop for just a second, and I want you to put your story in here. See, we all bring something to the table when we come to Jesus, and it's not the best parts of us. It's the worst parts. It's the parts of us that need to be fixed. It's the parts of us that need to be healed. So you may not be murdering like Paul, and we thank you for that. And you might not be ripping people off like an IRS agent, like Matthew was, but I'm telling you, you have your own story. You have it. And so this morning, I'm inviting you to respond like the people in this story before where they knew that they had nothing to offer but to go to the one that can fix it, and that's Jesus, and to know his grace is enough. It's it, it's it. And I'm gonna encourage you to pray along with one another, Romans 15:13. that may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with the hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. I pray that for you this morning. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.